If you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes all summer long. It is our goal to to read and study this book for the rest of the summer uh, leading up to our church picnic and baptism in the park. Uh, and we're right in the middle of our study. Really, starting last week, the, the, the book has turned from a view of all of the ways Solomon, the writer of the Ecclesiastes book, has looked at his life, and he's exposing his own view of vanity and meaning, meaningless pursuits. And, and he's interweaving into that and now really emphasizing the need for wisdom. The series that we're calling this is Under the Sun. You can live your life just on earth without any view of God or the heavenly realm or what God is doing to give you a revelation of who he is. And life under the sun is so meaningless. It comes and it goes. You come naked, you leave naked, take nothing with you. And Solomon is now going to say, so here's what you need. Wisdom for your life. Last week we looked at wisdom and all of these things that Solomon called the better way. It's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. It's like that's a wise perspective that requires the wisdom of God. It's better to know the end of the thing rather than the beginning. It's better to have a life that is fully completed upon death than even the newness of life in a baby and the, the joy of receiving the beginning. Today, we're going to look at the value of wisdom in a very practical way. And to do that, I came across a story, and this is how I want to start, because it gives a good picture of the word of God and the wisdom he offers us. I read a story about a fisherman. And he was from a small little island in the Philippines. And he went out on his boat to catch some fish. And he got caught in the middle of a storm. And his in the storm, his he tries to anchor and and the anchor gets caught and he's just completely out there, and he has to wait for the storm to get to pass, and then he, he goes down, and he, he removes whatever was lodging the anchor in its place, and he, he finds it was stuck on this mysterious rock, and so he actually takes the rock with him and takes it home. He says, it's a good luck charm, you know? It's like this rock maybe kept my boat from drifting off into shore, and he keeps it in his house for 10 years. It's just a good luck charm. And 10 years later, his house catches fire, and people come in to help him, and someone notices this good luck charm of a rock and says, what is that? He's like, I don't know. And he tells the story that I just told you. And upon further investigation, as people started to look at it and examine it, they realized that it was one of the biggest pearls that anyone had ever found, ever. And they, they took it, and they got it examined, and they gave it an estimation value in the millions of dollars. So this man living in a small village island in the Philippines for 10 years was living with a complete treasure on his shelf. And it took a fire and it took people to come around him to say, I think you're overlooking a great treasure in your own household. And so now maybe you can understand why in the conversation of wisdom, that story would remind us of what we're going to do today. God gives us his word and he says, Be wise. Lean on my word, not on your own understanding. Trust me in everything that you do. I will reveal the design of creation and life to you for you to walk in. And we're like, great. And we put it on the shelf. And it takes years for us to actually open up and treat the word of God as what the Proverbs say it is. 
The Proverbs say that wisdom is a treasure more valuable than rubies and precious gold. It is a, a treasure so valuable that we should mine the word of God to find the wisdom that is waiting for us to live life in a way that is worth more than money. And today's scripture will be a reminder of it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1 says, Who is like a wise man? Solomon has done a whole survey of his life. He's seen people with great wealth. He's seen people experience great feasting and pleasures. He's seen people go through all of life with righteousness, and in the end, they die. And now he's coming to the point of his journaling where he says, nobody compares to wisdom. Who is like someone who has wisdom? They know how to interpret life. They know the interpretation of a thing. And then he says this, and this is the offering as to why all of us should listen this morning and say, okay, I want my life to be defined by the wisdom of God. He says, wisdom makes a man's face shine and the sternness of his face is changed or his countenance goes from serious or stern or, or hardened to joy. The light of God's word shining on you today should mark you as people who have the light of God, God shining out of them. I'm teaching my kids to swim right now. And this really is a, it's a light analogy because it's talking about wisdom in the way that it makes us shine, almost like we're standing under the sun, which is the theme of the entire book. And as I'm teaching my kids to swim, they're starting to get the sun-kissed noses and cheeks that come. You know, after the burn, they start to brown and get kind of golden. And I'm like, oh, that just, they just glow when I look at them and I'm hanging out with them. I'm like, I wish we could just live under the, the joy of the summer sun forever. But alas, it fades away. But it gives us a reminder that we can glow. And in the same way, when you have a sweet time in God's word, a season of the Lord where you're really walking with him, where you're really seeking the value and the treasure of God's word to apply it to your life, what Solomon is saying, the word of God is saying this morning, is that we're supposed to be people who go from hardened and hard to a certain shine, a shine that could go into the darkness and be set apart for a world that has a sad countenance. For a world that doesn't know life beyond the sun, wisdom comes into your life and says, it's going to change your whole view as people approach you. They'll say there's something different about these people. And your kids will see it. I hope your spouses and your neighbors and your friends will see it. The man and woman who walks in wisdom has a light to their life. And so today, we're going to look at some application of wisdom. Some wisdom that you can put into your life to hopefully bring out the, the vitamins of God's word. And this is not going to be a holistic, complete teaching on wisdom. I think one of the lessons of the Proverbs and, and the wisdom writings is that this is something that you have to do for the rest of your life. There's none of us here, no matter how long you've been following the Lord and reading the word, that cannot benefit from another examination of God's word and the wisdom that he has for you, which means that he wants you to pursue him for the rest of your life. But today we can look at some of the things that Solomon offers as a lead up to the verse we just read. As he's been approaching this book, he's offered so many things that are meaninglessness, and now he's giving some real practical things to say, this is how you should live. And for most of these, there'll be seven things that we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and 8 that Solomon says, this is wisdom that will make your face shine. Most of them are actually things that he says, avoid, which is 
often common when you start to clean up your life. You start to know what you shouldn't do before you narrow down into the exact thing that God is calling you to do. It's kind of like with your diet. It's like, well, definitely stop eating ice cream and candy at night, and then we'll talk, right? And so for wisdom, Solomon's going to say, after I view my life, here are some things that I would tell anyone reading this, this journal of mine to not do. And as you do that, you'll start aiming towards wisdom. So six do nots, and then one thing that will, that will bless your life if you do it. The first thing in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 9, Solomon says, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So the first thing to avoid is someone who wants to change your countenance and have a light heart to your life. He says, don't be angry, which makes sense. If you don't want to be mad, avoid anger. If you don't want to be heavy-hearted, find a way to live your life and approach uh, the Word of God that would change your countenance towards the, the, the characteristic that we see in God that is often called slow to anger. He says one of that is because anger rests in the heart of fools. How many foolish things have you done in your life? How many times have your words come out and you just go off on someone or you, you know, you're driving and you do the one finger salute or you, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to people and you just make decisions that were in haste and there's a root in the bad decisions of your life that is anger. Man, I was so heated. I wish I could take all of that back. Well, he says, yeah, uh, someone who is fast to anger, who has anger hastening in their heart, is oftentimes going to have foolish behavior that follows them. This is what it says in James, kind of a, a retro look at the book of James as we just studied finish it. It says in James chapter 1 verse 19, know this, my beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So this gives us the beginning of our answer to how to avoid it and one of the warnings as to why it's so bad. He says, slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. So right now, one of the things that you're doing in favor of a slow to anger heart is you are sitting under the word of God. There's one of us speaking right now, and I speak on behalf of the Word of God, and I hope all of you have come to listen as a practice to say, if you really listen before you speak, namely listening to God's Word before you start in anger making decisions, you'll do well. That's what James is saying. But he also gives us another warning because he says, don't you know that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God? Now, this is a great thing for us as we navigate what I will call an angry culture. Can we agree that we live in times where as we leave this place, it seems like whether it's news or politics or, or uh, office culture, there are about half of the people you know right now that are mad at each other. And you're probably on one side of the aisle or the other. And one thing for us to to receive from the word of God today, as we are oftentimes desiring a righteous anger because we see things that should make us angry for the injustices of the world, for the confusion of the times that we live in, for the political divide and the, the fear-mongering that we live under. One thing we have to hear from the, God, from the Lord today is that anger doesn't produce righteousness. You can't get mad at someone so much so that they finally are like, well, since you're so angry, I'm just going to produce godly righteousness. That's not the way that we see God's anger pointing us towards God's heart. It says that God does have angry. He is slow to anger, but he holds back his anger. 
He gives us time and grace and mercy to know his kindness, which then leads us to a change of heart. And for those of you who are parents or coaches or teachers, I encourage you to take this word and apply it to your coaching or parenting or teaching and know that the people that are listening to you will be directed in your kindness much more than your wrath. That's one thing it's telling us today. Um, the other thing before we get to all of the ways of wisdom this morning, uh, some of you may not feel like angry people. Some of you may think this is like, okay, this is the other side of the aisle, not necessarily me. Or if I'm angry, it's because my kids made me angry. It's like, I, I hate that I say that to my kids. I'm like, you're making me angry. I'm like, well, I also am not really walking in the spirit and I have some uh, God-given capacity to avoid anger. So I'm sorry to blame you on that. But um, this is this is pretty a, a broadly applied definition of anger in the way that we are supposed to allow wisdom to remove it from us. Uh, if you look at the definition of anger, it says a strong feeling of annoyance. That's something that we can maybe bring before the Lord this morning. It's just all of the ways that we don't only live in an angry culture, we live in an annoyed culture. It's like so much that we do is just like, can you believe this guy over here? I can't believe the driver, the waiter, the teacher, the newscaster. It's like we're all just slightly annoyed. This is not wise either. In fact, there is a list that followed the, uh, the angry definition. And here are the top three uh, of those surveyed as to what makes them annoyed or angry. 85% of people said that other people on their cell phones bothers them to the point of annoyance. So congratulations. Some of you are just being annoying right now accidentally by reading the Bible. You have your Bible on your phone and people are like, can you believe this guy on his phone right now? I'm so angry. 50%, and I, this one's my favorite, 50% of people are annoyed at other people's messes, which makes perfect sense to my brain because I'm convinced that the world is evenly split between tidy people and people who are more oblivious to the, to the tidiness. And they're looking across the aisle like, man, you are so messy. And they're like, you are such a neat freak. I can't even breathe. If only our world was divided by the politics of tidy and untidy, we, I think it would be a lot easier to know where we all stand. I would actually be in the tidy party. I like a nice, clean environment. I would vote for the politician who's like, we need more sanitation and dump trucks. Like, <laughs> clean this place up. I'd be like, yeah, I'll vote for that guy. The final third of people are bothered by people who are not polite, which, again, this is, this is a perpetuating problem. So someone's mad, and that bothers you to the point of anger. And now you're mad, and now you're the next guy down the line where the whole culture is like, can you believe how angry all these people are? It's really making me angry. <laughs> so what's the answer? What is, we come here, I hope, the design of our gatherings is to come here and say, here's how we would be apart from God, but in this house we belong to God, so change our hearts. So what is our answer? How do we represent the countenance or the shine or the joy of people that belong to the tribe of God? Well, 1 Corinthians 13. It's a, it's a chapter of scripture that we should all be meditating on in the world that God has placed us in. It says, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Our first commandment is the law of love. 
We are called to love God and we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. And when we obey that commandment, we are people by definition of what the Bible presents to us as love who are slow to anger. Why? Because when we act out or we walk in love, we are reflecting the heart of God. And one amazing thing you can do as you read 1 Corinthians 13 is put in the name of God under the whole list of the characters, characteristics of love. Uh, God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrong. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He's long-suffering. He gives people time to hear or see the folly of their, their life apart from him. And then he pours out grace and mercy by which we come here to praise him today. So as we draw near to God, we draw near not only to his presence where there's the fullness of joy, but to his heart. And we leave this place desiring to be more like him. And when you become more like God, you walk more in wisdom and you have a light countenance to your heart because you're fulfilling the design of how he made you. You're not designed to be an angry person. You're designed to be a loving person. Here's another way that we can think about this. First Peter chapter four says, but the end of all things is at hand. Amen. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sin. Sin, frustration, failures of people in your life have a fork in the road for your heart. Are you going to get mad, angry, annoyed, and hostile, or are you going to love them? Are you going to forgive them? And, and Peter says, listen, we've got such a short amount of time before Jesus returns and puts all things to right. We don't have time to stay mad at each other. We have to allow those things that could be, we could err on the side of being angry and just hashing it out and just creating our lines in the sand that nobody can cross. But Peter says, because the time's so short, we've got to allow love to win the day. We've got to allow love to prevent us from being anger and angry and help us forgive one another. And as I was studying that, I'm like, Lord, do, do I share that? Because I do believe the end is near. And I do want to encourage all of us to have that in mind as we have decisions to make about angry and, and forgiveness. And, and as I was doing that, uh, I was talking to Pastor Kirk on the phone. And, and um, we were FaceTiming. And I'm, I'm just pulling up to my car. And he calls on FaceTime or my, my house. And as I'm FaceTiming, my kids run to my car. And he sees them and he's like, wow, that season of your, your life that you're in is so, it is just so good. It, it goes by so fast because he's seen they're, they're still hanging on my legs. I'm like trying to get inside and talking to Kirk. And he's like, oh, you're in such a good season. And then I walk in the door, hang up with Kirk and walk in the door. And my wife's like, I'm so glad you're here. The kids have clogged both toilets. One's got a toy in it and the other's got toilet paper. And I'm thinking, I'm so mad now. <laughs> what do you mean? That means we're down to no toilets. We've got to get this figured out fast. And, and so very quickly, I got the exhortation to, to just enjoy my season of life because it goes so fast. And then I got the opportunity to be mad and to try to figure out who did it, which I'm still on the case. <laughs> and as I'm doing that, of course, Kirk is in his heart thinking about what he just saw. So he sends me this text message and it says, enjoy your fam. It goes quick. And to which I wrote, dang. Because look at Kirk, man, he was so young. <laughs> and I realized that this is the message that the word is getting at. This, what we're doing right now, is going to go by so fast. 
God has made us a family. For those of you who have freely accepted the gift of his spirit to be adopted into his family, you are my brothers and you're my sisters. And we live in this window of time where God wants to see us, the family of God, represent the Father well and bring more people into the fold and see the spiritual gifts just stirred up. And I want to see God just be glorified in all of you. And and I want to see just the, the kingdom expand and all of us just learn how to be more like Jesus. Jesus for one another. And you know what's going to happen? Along the way, we're going to do things that clog the pipes. And it goes by so fast and we have a decision to make. Do we believe the end is near? Do we believe that whether God calls us home or returns to, to receive us, that we don't have enough time to be a divided family? We don't have enough time to stay mad at one another and and not allow God's love to just cover with all of us the grace of God. And, And so as I'm thinking about that for my own family, I just thought, you know what? God bless this moment in time. These kids... They, they, they acted in foolishness, but I am going to cover it for them, and we are going to enjoy this window of a time that we have together today, and I exhort all of you in the same way. Time is so short. God is returning. We do not have time to divide and create lines in the sand. In wisdom, when we walk with the joy and the countenance of the Lord, wisdom says we're not angry, we're forgiving. We're not angry, we're loving, and we're kind, and we're patient with one another. And then he says in in the next verse, verse 10, Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning these things. This verse actually came up in last week's study, but it's worth pointing out again because it's such a practical wisdom for all of us to walk out. We have a time in history that we live in, and every single one of us, your timeline to God, it says in his word, is from glory to glory, which means you experience these glorious seasons in your life. You're going to have a glorious season as, a, as a, a young student just stepping out in faith for the first time or a young family coming together for the first time. You're going to have a season in ministry that is just glorious. You're learning from the word. Or it's, you're opening and God's just speaking. And from glory to glory means there's some times in between where you're out of season, where it's not as fruitful, it's not as exciting, you're, going, you're learning patience, you're learning how to wait on the Lord. And this has been true of Solomon's day, it's true now. It's not just true of your personal life or the church life, but it's true of the world that we live in. We can look back to former days of the country we live in or the state we live in or the, the timeline of life that we look back on and we can say, man, it was so much better then. And Solomon says, that's actually not wise. You don't inquire correctly. You're actually doing something that is foolish. To look back and say it was better then. You're not accepting the reality that life is glory to glory. And if you're in the middle of a glorious season, there's another glorious season on the way. And it reminds me of a moment in Jesus' ministry where he had to deal with this very thing happening in the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel was on a downswing. downswing. They were occupied by the Romans. They did not have the seat of their king over the, the, the the city of David, Jerusalem. And they were waiting and they were thinking back to the glory of Solomon, who we're reading about today, when he had the, the whole kingdom was just on fire for the prosperity and the blessing of God. And they're thinking, wow, when is that going to come? When's the Messiah going to ret- return us to those good old golden days? And in Matthew chapter 16, you can turn there. It won't be on the screen. Jesus pulls his disciples to him and he, he wants to have a conversation with him. And he says, who do men say that the son of man, who is me, who do men say that I am? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They're all looking back. They, they, they see this man who's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God's love. He's healing the sick. He's offering pr prophetic invitations through repentance into the kingdom. And they're like, who is this guy? Everyone's wondering, who is this guy? It's got to be one of the old guys. Maybe it's Elijah because he was an amazing, he had miracle worker. Or Mary, maybe it's Jeremiah because he had this amazing message of repentance. Maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe it's a more recent guy. It's John the Baptist. He was just, he was just so radical in his faith. The reference point was just slightly to the past. And what does Jesus say? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That God did not just work through Elijah and Jeremiah and then set things up for John the Baptist and say, okay, I'm done. He said, the living God, the God who is here in our midst now. And we've got to hear that in our church age, just like every church age has to hear. The living God did not live up until 2019 or 2069 when the Calvary Chapel movement was starting or during the Great Awakening. The living God is alive and active now. The living God receives our praise today. The living God speaks to us through his word right in this moment. And for us to look back and say, man, I just, I love the old pastors or the old song styles or the way we used to gather. God is alive, and he's still on the move. And Jesus then goes on to say something that all of us need to hear. He says to Peter, Simon Peter, you're blessed, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because there are some people now in our church age, that truly believe the church age is coming to an end. They, they've come in, they've heard the message of the gospel, they've experienced a little bit of church, and they say, I don't think it's alive. I think it's dead. I don't think the future of the church is very bright. I think it's going to be gone. And they're no longer in our midst. Some of them have deconstructed all the way out of the faith. And to them we say, and for those of you who may relate to that now, not so fast. The church has survived some radical times in human history. The church has gone through some radical times of church history. The church has been pulled on by the seams. The church has, has gone through all sorts of different ways that it's, it's had to die and resurrect. And here we are today, praising Jesus and the end of the story is going to be better than any moment in church history ever. Which means that Solomon says to us, don't glory in the past. Now, those of you who believe that and receive that was just a mustard seed of faith, you're the church. Which means that's not a message that just exists in this sanctuary. Like, okay, well, every Sunday is going to get better. And even if it's a down Sunday, we still got some good ones ahead of us. Your life. You're part of the church. Your marriage is a representation of the church. Your family and your discipleship of your children, the way you work your job and the way you've been sent into the darkness of this world, you are the church. And it's not good. It will not help the countenance of your life to think of your own life in the past. 
You are someone that the gates of hell will not prevail against. You are someone that God is shaping from glory to glory to glory to do new and creative things to use your life to bring him glory and to complete you as a finished product. And the best days are ahead of you until you see him face to face and worship him forevermore. Okay, now number three. He goes through uh, chapter 7 until verse 16. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Okay, why should you destroy yourself? This one, we're going to, like all Proverbs, as I, I hope I inspire all of you through the desire to be people who sh- whose face shines under the, the, the power of wisdom, to be students of the Proverbs, they oftentimes take some meditation. They don't always come, you know, like an ice cream cone. It's like sometimes you got to wait on it, and it's, it's got to be savored. This one, it's like, don't be overly righteous. Is that, so is this, we're only going to like 80% righteous, and then we got to kind of pull back, which would have been great for my academic career if that's how growth worked, is you just don't want to go too far with it. Um, that's not what he's getting at. It, it, what, what Solomon is saying in the view of, as he writes out, his life in, in, in Ecclesiastes, he realizes that there is a righteousness that still ends up dead. There is a way to be righteous and to be even overly righteous that is not fully the meaning of life. And that's hard to unpack in church because we are here in the pursuit of righteous. Jesus is the righteous one. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become righteous. He's exchanging his perfection in righteousness for our horrible depravity and sin. That's the exchange that happens by his death and resurrection and our receiving of his spirit. So righteousness is the aim, but righteousness is the aim as we grow in the love of God. We are not just called to be students of what it means, the letter of the law, on how we ourselves can achieve righteousness. Because what Jesus had to come onto the scene to tear down was there was a a desire for self-righteousness apart from the power of God, creating in you a newness of life. And don't we know that that is the world we live in? We live in a world both in the church and out of it where oftentimes people desire to become righteous so that they're righteous, so that they're on the right side of the argument, so that they're better than the person over, so that they can take some comfort or even pride in their own work towards the throne of God. And the the challenge with this verse should really be do not be self-righteous. It's not wise. To approach any of this as something that you are going to accomplish on your life is foolishness and folly. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. This is an extreme way that uh, Solomon puts it. But what he's saying is all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And none of us will perfect righteousness apart from a constant repentance and washing of the word of God. So he says, don't become overly righteous. I, I think of a, a lot of moments in the ministry of Jesus where he was battling with self-righteous people. But there's one parable that he tells to try to encapsulate it all in the story. The parable is in Luke chapter 18. And, and we won't read the whole thing, but it's a parable you may have heard of. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. In his day, Pharisees were righteous and tax collectors were wicked. And so he says, let me tell you a parable. And he shocked the audience who heard it because the tax collector actually leaves the man honored with righteousness and not the Pharisee. 
But the way that he sets up the parable as to why he would need to teach it, the gospel writer Luke says in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, also he, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And this is why, this is a practical wisdom for the time that we live in. We live in a time where people are arguing in their own self-righteous camps from politics to online banter to church and doctrine and theology. And you know it's self-righteousness when you begin to lose humility in your need for a savior and point to everyone else's need for salvation. Despising others in your desire to be right. Don't be overly self-righteous lest you destroy yourself. And how many times have we seen the, the, the grip of self-righteousness just ruin relationships, ruin people's experience with their witness to God or their neighbors because they're so self-righteous that they can't even have a relationship that thrives. Don't destroy yourselves and become self-righteous. And now for all of those that maybe needed just a, a, a nudge from the word this morning to hear that, I now speak to everyone else who has to hear the exact opposite thing, which is don't be overly wicked, nor be Foolish, why should you die before your time? So again, what is this getting at? What does it mean to be overly wicked? Is there like a little bit of wicked points that you can leave here with? It's like I went to church, so now I got some credit to just be wicked for like one day. Uh, not that either. Again, uh, verse 20 is helpful. He says in verse 20, there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. That helps the self-righteous mind so that you know you need a savior. It also helps the wicked mind to say, you actually are wicked. He who says there, he has no sin is a liar. Every one of us, it's not that you have license for wickedness. It's that you are, by your fallen nature, apart from God, born under the curse of Adam, you have a capacity for good and evil. And what this is saying is, in your capacity for evil, you better find a way to repent before it grows out of control. All of us will have a temptation in our wicked nature this week, or this month, and sometimes those of you who have had stories where this is a true life verse in, in your experience, that grows to years of your life, where there's a sin that creeps into your life, and in the God-given uh, conscious that we have, we are able to experience it as wicked. We know it's wrong. It's like touching the flame of a fire. It's the candy store, the uh, candy bar in the convenience store. It's the white lie. It's the cheating on the test. It's the first glance of the, the lustful thought. All of those things come with a radar that says you shouldn't have done that. But if you keep doing it, what happens? The radar gets smaller and smaller and the pings get farther and farther and farther apart until you have become so overly wicked that it consumes you. And this is a life that spirals out of control. That sin, if you give it airtime in your life, it will destroy you. The Bible says we've been appointed once to die, which means there is a timeline on your life and sin will hurry it up for you. Overly uh, divulged sin will hurry it up for your life. I sadly had this picture this week as well when I was talking to a, a woman and she was telling the story of her sister and asking for prayer and, and her sister had been caught up in a heavy, heavy rotation of addictive drugs. And she said, just look at her. She shows me a picture, and if you haven't seen pictures of people who have gone into that world, their faces just go empty. The sin consumes, and it's a picture of all sin, but this one's right in your face. The face goes gray. It's empty. It's just decaying away, and the, the woman said to me, I pray every day that I don't get the phone call that she's about to die. 
This is sin that has taken hold in a way that you have turned off your sensitivity toward it. You've hardened your heart to God and he has given you over and now it waits at your doorstep to kill you. Solomon says, you want to be wise? Get really good at repenting. (laughs) Every one of us has sin crouching at our door. Every one of us has something that the Holy Spirit will say, don't do that. And you'll say, oh, I don't know. And here's the danger of the whole thing. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, in verse 10, uh, Solomon describes why this happens. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. They died. And they had come and gone from the place of holiness. They'd gone into the temple and they left. They came to church and then they went away. They were in a season with the word and then they turned it off. And they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Did you catch that? The sentence against sin, the sentence against evil work, the sentence against a pattern of behavior that could turn into wickedness unto death is not immediate. God will allow you to experience the full throes of sin. Every one of us stands under a banner of mercy and grace right now. God's wrath could be poured out on every single one of us and he could expose our sin except for the fact that we have been saved by the blood of the cross. The world stands under the mercy of God this morning. At any moment, God could say, I give you over. You want nothing to do with me. I am the source of life. I would have forgiven your sins, but you hardened your heart and now you deserve the just penalty of separation from me. But he doesn't do that. He allows Sin to take its course. And through that, some people will go so far into the bottom that they will open their eyes and their heart to the reality they need a Savior, and he will use the very thing that man intended for evil for their own good, and he will save them, which is true of many of us. But don't think just because your life seems to be going okay in your desire of sin, don't think that it's just going to happen and you're going to live that way forever. It will eventually take you to the grave. So Solomon says, don't be overly wicked. Verse 21. Also, do not take to heart everything people say. Uh, This one is the one that really got me excited about just knowing the sermon this morning. I think we could just read that. You can all have some quiet time with the Lord later. The Bible says... Stop listening to every opinion of every person in your life. In so many words, this is my translation. Do not take to heart everything that people say. Can we just exhale? And I want to give you license to live your life and the convictions that you have and the opinions that will rub people the wrong way and the truth that you stand in that not everyone agrees with and the light that you shine in the darkness that will be exposing acts of darkness and realize that people will say things about you. And that's okay. You don't have to listen to every opinion. You don't have to prove everything right to every person. And we live in a day and age that Solomon could only have dreamed of, the capacity by which people could listen to the opinions of others. If you have taken one step onto the digital world that we live in, you have done something to cause a ripple effect across the internet where someone doesn't like you, and that's okay. You don't have to listen to it. Well, it brings me to one of my favorite quotes by Mike Tyson. I got a lot of quotes by Mike Tyson that I like. It says, social media made y'all way too comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. It's like, in the real world, 
people used to have opinions that they used to have to kind of stand behind. And now everything that you do will be put on blast by someone. And the wisdom that will give you a light countenance, that's the goal. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1. The wise man has his countenance lifted and his face shines. You don't get that when every person's opinion affects you deeply. And for the believers among us, you don't get that by design. In fact, we're supposed to be people who walk the way that we live and the world that we live in in a way that people will say things that, that will kind of hurt your ears. And this is actually one of the primary blessings that Jesus teaches his followers. Remember when we studied the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount? You get all of these ways that Jesus says, you do this, you'll be blessed. Poor in spirit, be blessed. Be mournful, you'll be blessed. Be a peacemaker, you'll be blessed. And they all escalate towards the, the final version of the Beatitude or the blessed life. And what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus doesn't just say don't listen. Jesus doesn't say it's okay if people disagree with you. Jesus actually says, oh my goodness. You want to know how you're in the, the right camp? You want to know how you're following me? People are going to say all sorts of things about you. And when they do, be blessed or be happy. Be so content. You're, now you know you're actually following me in a way people don't like. Like, have you ever wondered, am I doing anything for Jesus? Am I, like, doing this right? Uh, there's all sorts of markers for that, but one of them is that some people should look at your life and be like, I despise your forgiveness. I despise the way that you have joy and hope right now. It bothers me, and I just want to, I just don't like it at all. It's like, oh my gosh, it's working. Be blessed. Be joyful. Be excited. Why? He says, they did the same thing for the prophets. Every person that I rose up to go speak to the hardened world that I created that didn't want anything to do with me, I'd send my prophets in. And you know what people said? The people that you guys read about and listen to and mark up and put above your, your mantle. As for me and my house, we'll choose the Lord. And I know the plans I have for you, a future and a hope. All these great little sayings that we love to have in our, in our mantles. Those guys got murdered. People didn't like them. People, they came with a message and people were like, I don't want to hear it. I like my life. Go back to where you came from. I don't want anything to do with you. So Jesus is like, when people do that to you, you're in their camp. I love, like, rejoice. Be excited. I say that needing to hear that and preach to myself because I stand up here and I, I oftentimes I'm thinking, okay, uh, we're going to talk about this today. I hope there's nobody that's in this political camp or this kind of going through this. And I'm like, and then someone years ago was like, dude, the beatitude. Like, you're supposed to rejoice when people don't like what you say. And I'm like, okay, well, if it's for the sake of Jesus, like, this is great. Like, say what you got to say, and, you know, hopefully someone listens to you, but I'm good. <laughs> That's what this is getting at. Okay. Uh, finally, or we give two more, and then, and then we're going to, we have one more do not, and then we're going to look at the one to do. So the do not. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 3. Let's start in verse 2. It says, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. So uh, Solomon's going to use some real-life experience and talk about the approach to the king. And he says one thing is, first, do the commandment of the king. 
Solomon was a king. He was a, a, a king that administered justice and, and saw the, the kingdom grow in prosperity while he was there. And he says, here's one thing that will give you wisdom. It will make you seem like a lighthearted, wise person. When the king speaks, listen. And when, the, when you're in his courts, when he's going to give a decree or a ruling, or he's going to give you a judgment, in our words, don't check your clock. Don't be like, is this guy done talking yet? He's the king. You shouldn't do that. That's a bad thing to do. Like, imagine if you got called into the courts. The king wanted to give you a message. And you were like, oh, that's cool. That's great. I love it. But I actually have to go somewhere. Solomon's like, that is, don't go hastily. Listen to what he says. Do what he says because he's the king. And if you do what he says, your life will go well. He's maybe thinking back to his own experiences when he saw his own people like, listen well to me and it'll be well for your soul because I'm, I'm a wise king. Now, he also overlays with that the approach to God. He says, you also made an oath to God. And so what this is saying for us in the wisdom that we have this morning is when the king speaks, do it. That will give you wisdom that will change the countenance of your life. When God gives a command, when the Proverbs say, this is how to live, take the commandment and apply it to your life. And then it says, and don't be hasty. So we all have one version of that now. It's like, sometimes you just look at the clock and it's like, is this guy done talking yet? Can we get going? And I respect that for the times that it's required. But the, the idea being is, when you approach the household of God, when you approach a setting like this, are you here to allow God to speak to you? Are you here to really listen? And then take it a step further, which is much more sincere. In your life, as you approach God and you say, I just need wisdom, you tell me to ask, and you say, okay, I'm going to open my life to you, and I'm going to open my heart and my mind to you in prayer. I'm going to open the word and I'm going to study it. Are you someone that will take time to be with God? Take time to listen. As Solomon says when the king gives a command, when the word says a judgment or a command or a decree, are you someone who say, I want to listen. I have nowhere to be. I want to do what you say. So the real question is, do you have a view of Jesus that would put him in the authority of a king over your life? Do you study and approach the word that would give it the authority that would speak behalf of the king in your life. And if you are someone that use wisdom as a commandment, the word says that you will be a lighthearted, joyful person as you obey. And now we come to the final part. The thing to do. The, the fork in the road of all of this is whether or not to do any of it, whether or not to obey any of this. And Ecclesiastes can be kind of a hard read because... Solomon is, is taking a, almost a two-handed approach. In one sense, he's like, in all of the things I ever did in my life, in making money and pursuing greatness and having amazing success, uh, most of it was meaningless. It didn't matter. And so you can read it sometimes, and you can almost feel despair in reading and say, okay, how much of my personal history and future is just going to be meaningless? But then there's moments in the book of Ecclesiastes where he, ha he says, so in light of all that is meaningless... Here's what matters. And one of the main themes that will come out in Ecclesiastes when he really gets to the point and the purpose of the book is found in the fear of God. To actually live your life as though God is the reality by which everything lives or dies. And he says in 
Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who have fear before him. Is God something that you would absolutely be afraid to not live out the commandments of God? Is the word of God something that you take seriously enough that it would be a, a, a danger of your life to get it wrong? And not, not always and not perfectly, but is the fear of God the beginning of wisdom for you? Is it the beginning of how you make decisions? Is it the beginning of how you approach situations and relationships and visions for the future? He says, the sinner is going to come and go, but those who fear God will do well. And then in the very end of chapter 8, he says in verse 17, Then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. What is he saying? He said, of all the work of, the, of God, I see how God moves, and I see how he puts it all into motion. I see how he designed it by wisdom. If you looked your whole life for the meaning of life, the purpose of your life under the sun, if you tried to discover the work of God apart from God, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how successful you are, what you do with your business ventures or your ventures of relationships. If you remove God, if you have no fear of God, if you have no God as the reality of all things, truth and death, it won't make sense. That's what Solomon says in the end. That is the fear of God. That God is the reality that makes everything else meaningful and purposeful. Without it, he says, you can live your whole life, toil under the sun, and search it out. Even the wisest among us will never actually find the meaning of what all of this was for. The only way you get the purpose is with God. And when you find that, we go back to the beginning. It says, now you have the wisdom that allows you to interpret the meaning of life. God's perspective on every detail of your life is the beginning of wisdom. And we're going to, in a sense, hold that in our hands today. As we end this service, like we end all of our services, we're going to hold a piece of bread and a cup. And those represent the righteousness of God given to us in exchange for our sin. The body of Christ, the blood spilled on our behalf. This is the beginning of the fear of God. The beginning of the fear of God is to say, I am a sinner who cannot save myself. You are a just God that actually does deal with the folly of man, the folly of woman, the injustice of the world. And wisdom begins when you see that the fear of God points you to the love of God. That God so loved us that he would rather us experience life in his name than death apart from him. So he lays down his life to give us ours. And when we hold that, we say, okay, if God didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for our sake, how much more will he give us all things? How much more can I walk out in the wisdom of the word and have life be life more abundant? When we hold the bread and the cup, we're realigned with the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the perishing world. And we say, God, in your wisdom, I'm saved. In your wisdom, I'm born again. In your wisdom, I'm part of this family. In your wisdom, your word now becomes the lamppost of my life. And you get renewed and refreshed every time you take it until he returns. And some of you, this is just an invitation from you, for you. This is the beginning of all of us. Every single one of us who came here intentionally to worship the living God 
came here with access because we realized our life and our wisdom was meaningless. It didn't work. It left us dead in our sin. But we accepted the free gift of his life exchange for ours. And now we get to walk under the banner of his grace and the wisdom of his word.